You're listening to the free preview episode of On Grief, a podcast about death by Karen Geyer. To unlock the full episodes, please visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod. Memberships start at just $2 a month. This is On Grief, a podcast about death. Episode 5, Caitlin Doty. Something I'm always trying to get you to do is hang out with dead bodies. Specifically the dead bodies of people that you love. Be involved. But you might say to me, Caitlin, my parents are perfectly healthy. My partner is perfectly healthy. I don't really have a dead body to hang out with right now. Sorry. How else can I confront my own death? Cemeteries are actually an excellent tool for this. Every city that I visit in the world, I eat a bunch of food and I visit the cemetery. Why else would you travel? If you get freaked out at all by being in a cemetery, get in there! They are quiet, they are beautiful, and they do an excellent job of revealing the history and customs of a particular place. To inspire you, I want to show you my eight favorite graves from places I've been around the world. Ask Mortician presents the eight most shocking graves from around the world. Number five will have you going, oh. Yeah, I guess that's mildly interesting to me. That was author and mortician Caitlin Doty introducing a segment on her show called All My Fave Graves. In addition to operating a funeral home, Caitlin is integral in a group called the Order of the Good Death, and she has dedicated her life to the death positivity movement. Today she's talking to us about her newest book, which is questions that children have about death and burial, called Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Welcome, Caitlin. Caitlin, tell us the question that's on every child's mind. Is it still possible in this day and age to be buried alive? I think it's interesting. We had such an obsession in the Victorian era with being buried alive. And the, the cultural obsession with safety coffins and bells that go all the way down into the ground so you can ring and be like, hello, I'm still alive in here. And it goes back to these things called death houses in centuries ago where they would put all the bodies in a room and have someone just watch them, just like an attendant sitting with all these decomposing bodies in a room waiting for somebody to wake up, which, surprise, they never did. It's interesting that it's such a important part of our cultural imagination. Anytime you hear today about somebody being waking up in a morgue, let's say, it's always in a country that does not have a highly developed medical system. Because our tests now for death are so good, our tests for brain death are so good, there's multiple criteria, there's multiple doctors that have to diagnose it, you're just not going to end up waking up in a morgue. And we're actually, you know, glad we've moved past the point where they stick needles under your toenails and carve something over your heart to make sure you're not dead. I didn't realize until I read your book that some of the ways that they used to test this were incredibly brutal. There's one that's my favorite that you put a certain type of material that reacts with breath, something in your breath, 
and you write as something like I'm really alive and put the piece of paper over the person's face. And I, if they're really, really alive, it will appear like the words will appear, which is some sort of like, sounds like a tales from the crypt thing, like uh, sort of archaic, like invisible ink, Carmen San Diego child's fantasy death is like. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what they, they used to do. And, and, you know, you sort of understand it because this is a time where you didn't, you knew that people disappeared. You knew that they died, but where do they go? What does death really mean? What does that look like? I mean, it's really only in the 20th century that we've had this highly medicalized and scientific view of death. I wonder if parents are going to read this book and wonder which one of their little angels decided to ask you a question about the legalities of cannibalism. Which, you know, it's never too early to talk to your kids about cannibalism, is what I say, what I always say. Um, yeah, and, and, and this is something that I actually didn't really fully understand until I did the research for this particular question, is that not only is cannibalism somewhat of a cultural taboo, but it's a strong chance that it hasn't developed as much as maybe we think it should have, because humans are just not nutritionally that valuable. So when you're making those, those weighing your pros and cons as to how hard you're going to work hunting, say, a mammoth or, or a tiger or whatever it is that you're hunting, when you're weighing those pros and cons, you also have to take into account, like, I could just kill my neighbors or I could just kill other humans. But if you're not going to actually get that much meat out of it and the caloric content is not that high and there's really too much fat and gristle, it's just going to end up that you don't really see the value in going after other humans. So is it illegal to eat a person? In some states, it's not, which is sort of, it's like, all right, like record scratch, like, wait a second. Um, in some states, it's not, it probably falls under something that I talk about a lot, which is called abuse of corpse laws. Abuse of corpse laws are basically laws that vary state by state that say essentially you have to take a person and do something dignified and respectful with them, which usually only means burial, cremation, or donation to science. So I use abuse of corpse laws to explain why we can't veer off in these directions of cannibalism or keeping dad's skull on the mantelpiece or even taking off tattoos and framing them and putting them on the wall, they all fall under these questionable abuse of corpse laws that each state has. Another child asked you a very practical question, one that's going to come up a lot more in the future. What happens when you have too many bodies and you don't have enough places to put them all? Where do you put them? This is something that I've been really obsessed with in the last couple of months because I've been traveling to Russia and Brazil and they all struggle with these same, especially in the big city, struggle mm-hmm. with the same issues that we might in Toronto or Los Angeles or New York. And the re- issue really is that, first of all, we live in pretty big countries. Like Singapore, for instance, only has one cemetery that people to bury in anymore and they only get a certain amount of time before you get kicked out of the cemetery you have time to decompose and then you've got to go whereas places like the united states or canada or russia are huge and there's infinite land to bury bodies but not in the cities not in big crowded cities and people want to die where they lived so where do you put them and one thing that i think we really need to consider in 
in North America in general is the idea of grave recycling. They do this all over the world, the idea of you basically rent your grave instead of buying it. It's not your super special forever place, but you rent the grave. And then after a certain amount of time, you are exhumed and your bones are either cremated and given back to the family or put in an ossuary, a special place for the bones. But it's not this idea that you get your headstone in your grave and it's supposed to be kept into perpetuity forever and ever and ever. In Toronto, where the 401 highway meets the 407 just past the airport, you can see a cemetery under a clover leaf. It's called Ritchie Cemetery, and there are several dozen residents living there. And I guess that is a feature of when the one of the biggest highways in North America was built. They didn't want to move the bodies. I, I appreciate that. That's better than a lot of what they've done in the United States, especially in African-American burial grounds, which is just build right over the top of it. And, you know, they'll be building a target or they'll be, you know, there'll be some, I think just recently there was an apartment complex where they realized that right in the middle of the courtyard of the apartment complex were just hundreds of graves from an African-American graveyard that have just been completely ignored and, and, you know, buried over. And that's, and that's what's sort of fascinating, right? It's like we, we bristle at that and we don't like the idea that we have forgotten these graves or ignored these graves, but yet in other countries we have grave recycling where that's not the expectation at all. Something that has stuck with me since I read one of your previous books called From Here to Eternity is you describe this beautiful, futuristic, zillion-dollar light show columbarium that you visited in Japan and I was wondering if you could talk about that for us today. Tokyo, I think, is one of the absolute models for what death care should be like in, in highly developed countries. And the reason is because they really mix old rituals like washing the body and, and dressing the body with the family with very hyper-realistic, hyper-intense technology. Um, for for the future of death care. And one of the places is called Ruriden Columbarium. And it's a big 360 degree room of crystal Buddhas. And behind each Buddha is a set of ashes. So the Buddha corresponds to almost like the little headstone, I guess, of your loved one. And when you walk in, you have a tap card, almost like a subway card or a credit card that you boop, boop, boop at the entrance. And it lights up first of all it lights up the whole columbarium blue all the buddhas glow blue and then your particular loved one's buddha will pulse in like a white light so you're directed directly to the buddha of your loved one and you can light incense and you can pray and have your time there and it's interactive it's quite beautiful i thought it was going to be a little more like a vegas light show but it's it's very beautiful and you feel like you're in like a futuristic womb when you're in there. And it's just a very positive experience and, and honestly did a lot more for me than maybe a, a typical North American columbarium where there's maybe some sort of old flowers. Your description of it intrigued me so much that I had to track down a video of it on the internet. And there are a few videos of it floating around and it is it's wild. It's, it's so interesting. It is. It's hard. It's, it's hard to describe. He and the, the monk who, who runs it, who's really an, an incredible man. He 
is able to, you know, in his full old monk robes, he has control over the, the light settings on it. And he'll say, winter, winterscape. And like, you'll see the snow falling on the Buddhas and like fallscape. And, you know, the, the leaves will like move from Buddha to Buddha in these different fall colors. And it's just, it, it, it's very surreal, but it doesn't, I, I will say that it does not at all feel tacky. It in no way feels disrespectful or tacky. So one of the features of Tokyo's approach to funerary tradition is it's pretty much mandatory cremation. Is that something that you foresee coming to North America anytime soon? Well, the cremation rate in America is rising. In in the 1980s, it was only 3%, and now it's over 50%. So that's a really sharp jump, right, in in rates of cremation and the number of people choosing cremation. Um, Japan, it's important both culturally, but also because Japan doesn't have the space that America has, doesn't have the endless space. You know, they are trying to be mindful of that. And land is incredibly expensive. I do think that people are becoming less enamored with the idea of the embalming, the casket, the traditional headstone, the forever grave. Um, it's, you know, I think that, um, I think they did a study that only a third of people are interested in that kind of service anymore, um, which is bad news for the funeral industry as it currently exists. I think that people are turning to cremation, but cremation also honestly has its problems. It's, you know, uses a ton of natural gas. It uh, emits um, carbon dioxide and, and different um, particulates into the atmosphere. Um, it's not completely ideal. And, and there, are, there are new methods like human composting, for instance, like water cremation or alkaline hydrolysis, which uses high heat water and potassium hydroxide in, in, to cremate the body instead of fire. I think that these are re- options that are going to keep growing in popularity. One of the reasons why people really love your writing and your videos is that you have a tremendous sense of humor when it comes to the subject matter. In your book, you discuss something called pumpkin spice mummies. Can you elaborate on what that means? <laughs> um, so this is, that I was like, is that a real thing? Oh, that is a joke I made. Yes. I remember. It's a callback to a joke of mine. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. So the, in rural Indonesia, they have a culture where they're much more connected to the physical dead body than we are. I mean, by leaps and bounds, much more connected to the physical dead body. And in South Sulawesi, in Tana Taraja specifically, they will keep their dead, mummify their dead, and keep them in the home for sometimes years after the person dies to prepare them for the funeral. Even after the funeral happens and the person is put in a grave, they will every couple of years have a festival where they bring the dead mummified bodies out and clean the bodies, put new clothes on the bodies, take pictures and portraits with the bodies. And what's interesting about being there is that it really feels quite normal when you're there. You know, they, there was families that would say, you know, come on over, get in the picture, get in the picture. And I'd say, no, 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 <laughs> no, thank you. Um, they go, no, 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 get in the picture. So I'm in pictures with like family photos with their dead mummified grandmother on right. Instagram somewhere in Indonesia. Um, and it, it, it feels like a normal sort of potluck or family gathering. And yet there are all of these mummified corpses there. And it really blows your mind wide open as far as what is possible and what 
can still feel normal because every culture just wants to do their very best to honor the person who has died. Mm-hmm. And it just looks happens to look very different from culture to culture. So when you think about funerary traditions that are unusual to North Americans, a funeral pyre is pretty much at the top of that list. But there is one place in America where you can be interred on a funeral pyre. Do you want to explain? It's in Crestone, Colorado, which is rural Cal- which is rural Colorado, uh, south of Denver. And it's a group of people in this small town who came together to make this open air pyre happen. And the laws in Colorado around death care are some of the most lax in the nation, which is great. A real libertarian vibe out there. But it's still, I cannot overstate the amount of work and cultural change locally that that these folks had to do to make it happen and to get permission to have this open air cremation pyre. To unlock the rest of this episode and to hear more episodes, visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod.